All right, everyone, welcome to Gospel of Grace's Worldview Wednesday. We are going to be tackling the cults of the doorstep. I'm going to be handling this evening the cult of the Jehovah Witnesses. Next week, Dana Birkinshaw is going to be handling how to witness to the Mormons. So that's how we're going to begin. But let's begin before we uh, get started in the scriptures. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the truth of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that we have sufficient atonement in your Son, that we don't have to try to work for our salvation. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a love and a hunger to witness to Jehovah Witnesses who come to our door. Uh, Help us tonight think well upon the biblical text so that we may be equipped to give a rational defense for the faith that's been once for all handed down to the saints. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this evening, what I want to do is I want to begin by talking about the Jehovah Witnesses, their background, before we get into how they compromise the gospel. There are so many doctrines and false teachings that they have, we could go all night, but we're going to focus, I think, on the ones that are most um, efficacious for us when they come to the doorstep, when we're trying to witness to them, and they really focus on the distortion of the gospel. But before I do that, I want to give you kind of the backdrop to where the Jehovah Witness organization came from. The man who originated it, the founder, his name was Charles Russell. He was born in 1852. And what you have to understand is in America at that time, in the 1800s, there was what I would call millennial madness. That is the idea that Jesus would literally reign from the earth for a thousand years became a very prevalent teaching, which is fine. That's what we believe here at Gospel of Grace. The problem was it was also attended with all sorts of date settings. You had a ton of people who were setting dates for when Christ would return. In fact, there was a guy named William Miller. How many have heard of the Millerite movement? I know Bob has heard of it and Dana. Well, this William Miller taught that Jesus Christ is going to personally return to the earth in 1843. And, of course, Jesus doesn't return in 1843. And instead of learning from Scripture that no one knows the day or the hour and learning from his mistake, he tells all of his disillusioned followers that he just made an error in calculation. And so then he says it was going to be in 1844. Well, of course, 1844 rolls around, still no Jesus, still no millennial kingdom. And that becomes known as the great disappointment of 1844. And so the Millerite movement then ends up kind of disbanding, and a bunch of the people who were disillusioned from it end up forming a lot of these cults that we see, like the Seventh-day Adventists. They find themselves under false prophetesses like Ellen G. White. Well, it's in this milieu that Charles Russell is born. And so he's born into a Presbyterian family, but he hates the doctrine of election. And he hates it so bad that he leaves Presbyterianism. But even though he becomes a Congregationalist, he still can't get around the fact that the Scriptures teach the doctrine of election. So by age 17, he becomes a skeptic. Well, lo and behold, in 1870, he hears a man named Jonas Wendell, who had come from that Millerite movement that I just described to you. And he's teaching eschatology, setting dates, all sorts of things, And Charles Russell thinks this is great. And so Charles Russell ends up engaging in this date setting 
mentality where they're going to try to predict when Jesus Christ will come. And so it's in that milieu of trying to set dates for the coming of Christ that Charles Russell ends up founding really the inception of the Jehovah Witness movement. In 1879, they have their first publications called Zion Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence. So that was one of their first publications. By 1880, they have 30 congregations in seven states. And so what you have to know when you see the Jehovah Witness come to the door is that their eschatology, their understanding of the end times, is that which drives their whole system of theology. They are pietists through and through who teach that if you work hard enough in the Watchtower Society, you will earn your spot in this glorious kingdom that Christ comes. So notice it's not by grace, all right? Now, some things that they teach and some things they, you and I would affirm as evangelicals, they believe that God will bring utopia to earth after the imminent battle of Armageddon, okay? Now, when I was studying for this, one of the resources I had was put out by Reformed theologians. Now, remember, Reformed theologians are typically not premillennial. They're amillennial or postmillennial, right? Well, they'll use the fact that you and I are premillennial and Jehovah Witnesses are premillennial, and they'll kind of beat us over the head with it and say, well, you guys have the same goofy ideas that lead to Jehovah Witnesses, etc. But notice here, what the Jehovah Witnesses believe that are, that's an imminent prospect is the Battle of Armageddon. Now, that happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation. What do we believe to be the imminent event to occur? The bodily return of Christ to rapture his church. Okay? And so there is a difference. Now, this would certainly line up with post-millennialism, so I'm not saying it's heresy, but I just want you to see what you believe to come imminent is an important matter in eschatology. Now, here's where the problems begin. They claim, this is Charles T. Russell, the founder of the organization. He wrote a seven-volume set called Studies in the Scriptures. And within this seven-volume set, he contradicts himself. He taught here, this is volume seven, that the millennium, remember that's the thousand-year reign of Christ, began in 1874 with the return of Christ. So you and I didn't even realize how good we had it we are living now during the millennial kingdom, so says the Jehovah Witnesses. Well, of course, that's not true, is it? So these are the date setters, the Jehovah Witnesses. Yeah, yeah, tell, yeah exactly. Well, now, look at here. They changed the date. Now, this is volume two, so he wrote this earlier. Charles Russell said, The battle of the great day of God Almighty that we see in Revelation sixteen fourteen. This is Armageddon. He says, Which will end in AD 1914 with a complete overthrow of earth's present rulership is already commenced. So he's writing these things in the late 1800s. Now, this is one of the big teaching tenets of the Jehovah Witnesses. Jesus Christ came back in 1914. They all hold to that. But when you say, well, where is he? They say he came back spiritually. He didn't come back bodily. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, of course, the Bible teaches that Jesus, when he returns... A second time he returns bodily. In fact, jot this passage down. Revelation 1.7. Listen to what John says. The Apostle John says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. So notice the public nature. Revelation 1.7. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. 
Think about Acts 1.11. Remember in Acts 1.11, Jesus ascends into the heavens and he ascends bodily. And you have the angels say, Men of Galilee, why do you gaze skyward? This same Jesus is coming back in the same manner that he went into heaven. Well, how is it that Jesus went into heaven? Did he go just spiritually? No, he went bodily. And he's therefore what? He's going to return bodily as well. Yeah, Peter. How did they know he returned spiritually? They just make the claim. In fact, in some of their writings, they claim that he was enthroned in heaven. Okay? So you and I, of course, can verify that. But the problem is, like 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it's the Lord himself who descends with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God. So Jesus comes down for his church bodily. Now, this is something Bob had taught me many years ago. Think about 1 John 4. John is dealing with Docetus. Docetus in his day denied that Christ came in the flesh. They said he only seemed to be human. So John says in 1 John 4 too, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, John is talking about the first advent there. But think about this. The same principle applies for the second advent. If someone teaches that Jesus Christ comes back spiritually or mystically, they're a heretic. No, he's coming back bodily. So that's a test for orthodoxy. They must teach that he's coming back bodily. So that, that was uh, the passage I just gave you. It's 1 John 4, 2. Yep. And by the way, I'll have more passages on the screen here in a minute. Just in the introduction, I had a few floating in my notes here. But now, these date setters, they don't stop with this. Anytime a date goes bad or south, they just make another one. So later on, 1918, they said, well, God is going to destroy all the churches so that everyone in the world would realize the works of Charles Russell and the Watchtower Society. 1925, the Jehovah Witnesses predicted that the patriarchs would be raised from the dead. Okay, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, of course, that didn't work out. In 1941, they said Armageddon was going to happen then, and it didn't happen. And then the next big date that they set for the coming of Christ was 1975. In fact, listen to this. This is from one of their publications. This is written in 1974. The publication was called Kingdom Ministry Magazine. It was May 1974, page 3. They said this, quote, you can just hear the excitement. Reports are heard of brothers selling their homes and property and planning to finish out the rest of their days in this old system in the pioneer service. Certainly this is a fine way to spend the short time remaining before the wicked world's end, unquote. So when Jesus didn't come back in 1975, they just changed the date again. In fact, they went back to 1914 saying, well, he came back spiritually, okay? Now, everyone... He, they, these are the Jehovah Witnesses. They were claiming that the millennial kingdom was going to start in 1975. What did the world get instead in 1976? The Jimmy Carter administration. You win, yes. <laughs> Talk about the great disappointment. They thought the millennial kingdom was coming and they got the Carter administration. So I got a kick about that. I thought, oh boy. Talk about the bait and switch, right? <laughs> so yeah. So again, here's why the eschatology is so important. They are pietists through and through. The Watchtower teaches that through their organization and through their works, you may have the chance of becoming one of the 144,000 that will become part 
of this glorious kingdom. They are elitists and pietists through and through. And so this drives really their whole theology. Okay, I want to focus on how do we witness to them when they come to our doorstep. And I want to focus on how the Jehovah Witness attacks the essentials of our gospel. Listen to this definition of a cult. A cult is a Christian, quote-unquote, organization that purports to be Christian. And I like the definition here from this apologetics ministry that I was researching with. They said this, they said a cult is, a cult of Christianity is a group of people which claiming to be Christian embraces a particular doctrinal system taught by an individual leader, groups of leaders, or an organization which denies either explicitly or implicitly one or more of the central doctrines of the Christian faith is taught in the 66 books of the Bible. That's exactly what the Jehovah Witnesses do. They attack the gospel. So when we look at the gospel, let me give you the essentials as I see it. Uh, Yeah, Brian. That would include every religion. (laughs) Exactly. I think the big distinction is that the cult claims to be Christian. Okay, it's within a a, a false religion doesn't necessarily claim to be Christian or hold to Christ. You know what I mean? So like a Hindu wouldn't claim any specific claim on Christ. Yeah. Yep. Good comment. Now let's talk about gospel essentials. First of all, we talk about the need for the gospel. All the fact that we're all sinners. We're under the wrath of God. Bob was talking about this last Sunday in his sermon. Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death, not just temporary, but one day eternal. Right? In the lake of fire. So that's what we need to be saved from. And that's where the remedy comes. This is the good news, the person and work of Jesus Christ. All right? He is the one who provides atonement, lives the perfect life that you and I cannot. Next comes the reception. How is the good news received? It's by faith alone, all by God's grace alone. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. What's the result? Well, it's everlasting life. The bodily resurrection, being a partaker in Christ's kingdom forever. In the millennial kingdom and then in the eternal states. All right? Now, let's contrast that with what the Jehovah Witnesses do. First of all, with the need... They don't believe in eternal damnation. Okay? They teach that the soul, in fact, is annihilated at Armageddon for those who are not Jehovah Witnesses. So they believe in annihilationism, that people cease to exist. So there's not eternal judgment. All right? Now, annihilation doesn't sound that much fun to me either. But again, they're denying the reality of eternal damnation. Number two, when it comes to the good news, they have a different Jesus. Their Jesus is a created being. He's not the creator. He's not the uncontingent being who created all things, but instead he's a contingent being who himself was created, and therefore his atonement is insufficient. You also have to work for your salvation. Three, how do you receive it? Well, they'll talk about faith, except they even redefine what faith is. It's really a form of knowledge, knowledge alone, but it's primarily by works. If you work for the organization you may have a chance of being one of the 144,000. And that's the result. It's only the 144,000 that have a part in the kingdom. Now, if you're a slacker, a slacker Jehovah Witness, you still have a chance of salvation, but it won't be in the celestial kingdom. It'll be on earth, okay? And you'll be relegated to earth forever and ever, okay? So you can see the differences there. They're attacking really every aspect of the essentials of the gospel. So I want to take them one by one. Let's begin with the need. You and I claim again to the world 
that God's wrath is real, that hell is in fact a place where people will be thrown into the great lake of fire. As it says in Revelation 20:15, they deny that. Listen to the Jehovah Witness claim. This is from one of their publications, The Divine Plan of the Ages, page 128. The Jehovah Witness says, Eternal torture is nowhere suggested in the Old Testament scriptures, and only a few statements in the New Testament can be so misconstrued as to appear to teach it. So notice what they're reacting against. They don't want to believe that there's anything like eternal punishment. Notice what the scriptures teach. I like 2 Thessalonians 1. This is a great passage to show the eternal nature of judgment, no matter who you're dealing with. 2 Peter 1, 8 through 9, Paul says that Christ, when he returns with his angels, will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, notice the term eternal. Ionias, it just simply means without end. It's everlasting. Okay, so there's no fudge room there. You can't say, well, maybe it means this shorter time period. No, it means without end. All right? By the way, the term destruction there, this is what they would refer to as annihilation. It doesn't mean that. Think of the analogy. If your car is in an accident and the insurance adjuster says it was totally destroyed, If your car is totally destroyed, does it cease to exist? Is it annihilated? No. It's ruined. It might not work properly, if at all, but it's not annihilated. And the same thing really applies in Scripture. Death is separation, initially body and soul, and then one day separation from God. And the judgment is eternal. And so the unbeliever is going to be raised, as we see in Revelation 2015, for the express purpose of judging them bodily forever and ever. And it will be, I would imagine, very difficult in the lake of fire. So, again, they're denying that, which I think shows that they are trying to eliminate one of the threats that you and I need to be saved from. Now, one of the reasons why they deny everlasting judgment is because they deny a soul that lives on after people die. Okay, They're called monists. You and I at uh, Gospel of Grace, Bob and I at least teach this, we're dichotomist. We believe that the scriptures teach that a human being is made up of a body and a soul. Okay? The soul is used often interchangeably with spirit. Okay? Well, they don't believe that, and I'll show you evidence. The Jehovah Witness says this. This is Make Sure of All Things, page 349. They say a human does not possess a soul separate and distinct from the body. Okay, now, let me give you some data that you could use. And my idea is, think about if a Jehovah Witness comes to your door, what I like to do is have a Bible that I have just for the cults, one for Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. That's what I have. And so I put my stuff in here if I want to show them certain things. And so these are things you can put in your Bible. Here's some good data for you to show that, yes, human beings really do have a soul, and it's all over the Bible. Genesis 35:18. remember, this is where Rachel... She dies giving birth to Benjamin. It says it came about as her soul, that's nefesh in Hebrew, the soul that God gives in Genesis 2-7. Her soul was departing for she died and that she named him Benoni. And of course, then we know that Jacob renames him Benjamin. Okay, So clearly the idea here is driven from Genesis 2-7 where remember in Genesis 2-7 you have Adam and he's been created but he's lifeless, his body 
And so what does God do? He breathes ruach. He breathes the breath of life into Adam and gives him, uh, makes him a life, uh, a, a whole life with a soul in it, as it were. Okay? So we see this in the Old Testament. This is why Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, that when it comes to the body, the dust returns to the earth, and he says the spirit returns to God who gave it. Okay? So this is, that was Ecclesiastes 12, 7. All right? Let me give you another passage here that clearly teaches this. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we were at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Okay, so let's just stop there for a moment. To be home in the body means you haven't died, and therefore you're absent from the Lord. So again, what death is in the biblical conception is separation. So the idea is if you die, your body goes into the ground, and your soul as a believer would go to the Lord, right? So he continues, verse 7, he says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, we are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Okay, so again, the biblical conception is when the body dies, there's separation of body and soul. The believer's body goes into the ground. Their soul goes to be with the Lord. What happens to the unbeliever? Well, their body goes into the ground and their soul goes to Hades, the temporal holding place until the white throne judgment in Revelation 20. And then from there, they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. All right? Many other passages. Uh, jot this one down, Revelation 6.9. Revelation 6.9, this is the fifth seal. Listen to the fact that souls who don't have their bodies can communicate. They have volitional being. All right? Revelation 6.9, it says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Now, in the very next verse, I didn't put it in my notes, but in verse 10, they cry out. They say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? I'm paraphrasing. So they are crying out to the Lord that God would judge the enemies of God. Now, these same souls, interestingly enough, when you get to Revelation 20, verse 4, they're raised from the dead. And so then they're reunited with their bodies. And so that's what the resurrection is about, putting the body back with the soul for the believer. And then for the unbeliever, they have a resurrection too, but it's only for the purpose of being judged. So these are passages, they're all over the place. Clearly the scriptures teach that there is an immortal soul that is in fact, I wouldn't say eternal, because that would imply there was never a beginning, but it's everlasting in the sense that there's never an end to it. That's what we have to affirm. Okay. Now let's go on to the second part of the gospel which is the good news of who Christ is. And I want to talk about the fact that they have a different God. The Jehovah Witnesses believe in something called dynamic monarchianism. And I know that sounds like a mouthful, but let's unpack that a little bit. Monarch comes from two words that are put together, mono meaning one, and in Greek the term arche, which means ruler. And so you even see that in English. Monarch means typically an autocrat, somebody who rules alone, like a king, right? Well, we know of two different forms of monarchianism in theology. How many have ever heard of a oneness Pentecostal? Yeah, many of you have. A oneness Pentecostal would be a modalistic monarchian. Okay, now think about this. Think of monarch being the king. Modalistic means the king changes modes. Okay, so what they would believe is that there's one God, and what he does is he simply puts on different costumes. 
One day he has the father costume on, costume on, and then he'll change costumes and he'll put the son costume on. Or he'll put on the costume of the Holy Spirit. So one God who just changes different positions, that's modalistic monarchianism. There was a heretic named Sibelius who taught that many years ago. Oneness Pentecostals hold to that. Well, dynamic monarchianism is the idea that there's just one God in one person and he doesn't put on different costumes, okay? The Holy Spirit is merely a force like electricity or like the wind and Jesus is merely a created being. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses believe, okay? So always make the distinction. Modalistic monarchianism, he's changing costumes, but in dynamic monarchianism, no, one God, one person, Jesus is just a created being. The Holy Spirit is just a force, all right? So here's some quotes from them. Page 188, make sure of all things. They say there is one God and one person. They claim that there is no trinity. You and I believe that God is one in essence, three in person. They say the Holy Spirit is a force. He's not alive. They say Jesus is a created being who existed as Michael. Now, where did they get this nonsense that Jesus exists as Michael the archangel? Well, they really borrow it from one text, it's 1 Thessalonians 4.16. You can even turn your Bibles there if you have a moment. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. This is where Paul says that the Lord himself will descend with the shout of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Now, just based on that verse, they try to equate Jesus, the Lord who descends, with the shout of the archangel. Well, this is what I typically do if they're on my doorstep. I say, look, at with that kind of reasoning, then should we not equate Jesus to God? Because not only does he descend with the shout of the archangel, but it's also what? The trumpet of God, right? So, of course, it shows the absurdity of their view, all right? Jesus is certainly different, even in that text, than Michael the archangel. But that's where they get it from. So 1 Thessalonians 4.16 is the passage that they use. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you some Trinitarian texts. The hardest thing sometimes when they come to the door is to think of a good Trinitarian text that is helpful in proving the Trinity and not only seeing the different persons of the Trinity, but being able to demonstrate that they are, in fact, distinct persons. Okay? I think my favorite passage that's most useful here is Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Okay? The reason I like this is you see all three members of the Trinity... But you also get a two-for-one in that it proves Jesus is God. I'll show you how that works. Listen to what Paul says. He says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his, his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is, notice we have different colors. We have three different colors. God the Father is in blue. We have God the Son in red. And God the Holy Spirit is in green. All right? Now, what I think is particularly powerful about this verse is, notice when you get to verse 6, you have a relative pronoun, whom. And it matches in case with the Holy Spirit. And so it's directly linking back to the Holy Spirit. So we know the whom is referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason that's significant is because notice it says he poured out. 
Well, this is a verb, but in Greek, the verbs are also subjects oftentimes. So here is your subject. So God the Father is the subject, and the Holy Spirit is the direct object. And so in this one clause, you have a subject-object distinction between the Father and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So think about it. In John 14, 26, when Jesus says that the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit, you don't send yourself, right? You send someone else. And sure enough, the subject-object distinction shows us that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, a different entity than the Father. Now, I'll show you in the next slide. We'll prove that the Holy Spirit actually is a person as well. He's not just a force. Okay, but the subject-object distinction, I think, is very helpful in showing the difference. But also notice in verse 6 that it says, "...whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." Notice the preposition there. That preposition, dia, plus this genitive construction means that Jesus is the personal agent by whom God has worked out all of salvation. So you see a subject-object distinction between the Father and the Holy Spirit, but you also see that Jesus is the personal agent by which all of this salvation is accomplished. And so all three persons of the Trinity are involved and yet distinct in salvation. All right? Now, another reason why I love this passage is because of its connection to Isaiah 43. That's a passage I think all of us should commit to memory. Isaiah 43, 11, where the Lord says, I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. The reason I like to memorize that one is because it's so helpful in refuting the cult. Here's why. Notice God is saying that there's no Savior except Him. Okay? Well, in Titus 3, 4, God the Father is Savior, right? But notice down at the end of verse 6, Jesus Christ is also Savior, isn't He? All right? So if there's only, if only God is Savior and Jesus is Savior, you can conclude what? That Jesus is God. Okay? So we get a two for one. Not only can we prove the Trinity from this text, but we also get to prove that Jesus is God from this text as well. Now, there's another passage. Just jot this down. Another one you could turn to if you need more uh, help in this is uh, Matthew 3, 16 through 17. Think about that's where Jesus is baptized and there's the voice from heaven. Bob and I have talked a lot about this on radio. The voice from heaven, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. That's the Father. You have the Son with whom the Father is pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, not as a dove. He's not a dove, but he descends like a dove. And so all three persons of the Trinity are in that passage as well. Okay. Now I want to move on because we have to prove, I think, to them that the Holy Spirit isn't a force. Right? The Holy Spirit is actually a person. And we can do that just through using texts that we see every day, like in Acts 13. The Holy Spirit speaks. We know a force wouldn't speak, but a person sure would. The Holy Spirit speaks, Acts 13, too. It says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice the fact that also the Holy Spirit called Saul and Barnabas, Barnabas for their work, which shows that the Holy Spirit has volition. He has a will to do things. The Holy Spirit teaches the John 14, 26 passage. The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit also prays. Romans eight twenty six. Paul says in the same way, 
The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. That's what's called an adjectival intensive. So it's the Spirit himself, no one else. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words in our prayers. Now, um, Ephesians 4.30, think about other things. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Remember Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you've been sealed until the day of redemption. Well, can you grieve lightning? Or can you grieve a wind or grieve a force? Well, of course not. But you can grieve a person. In Acts 5.3, Ananias lies to the Holy Spirit, right? Can you lie to lightning or a force? Of course not, all right? Um, in, later on in Acts 21.11, the Holy Spirit knows the future. So all of these things show us that the Holy Spirit is certainly a person. He's not a force. Now, if you combine that with what we just saw in Titus, we see a distinction between the persons, and yet we see also that the Holy Spirit isn't a force. He really is a person himself, okay? So very... Powerful, I think, if you show these things to a Jehovah Witness. Now, the big issue, if you only have 10, 20 minutes to deal with a Jehovah Witness, what you want to focus is on Christ. That's where the big issue is. They have a different Jesus. Remember, what does Paul warn in 2 Corinthians 11? He said he feared that the Corinthians would be deceived, just like Adam and Eve, and they would have a different Christ, a different spirit, and therefore a different gospel. So we have to win on the person and work of Christ. That's our main task when we're dealing with Jehovah Witnesses. Now, this is what they teach. These are the Jehovah Witness positions. They believe that Jesus had three different states. In his pre-human, Jesus, this is his pre-human state, they claim that Jesus was created and existed as Michael the archangel. And again, I mentioned the 1 Thessalonians 4.16 passage that they use. Okay? Now, by the way, how could we refute that? Well, one way to refute that is, remember in Hebrews 1, all of God's angels end up worshiping him? There's a distinction in the book of Hebrews between the angels and Christ. Christ is far superior than the angels. All of the angels worship Christ. He's certainly different than the angels. He's far above them. So Hebrews is very important there. Now, when he's incarnate, they don't believe in an incarnation. I shouldn't even say that. They believe in a virgin birth. But Jesus just changes forms. The virgin birth yields a strictly human Jesus who traded his spirit body as Michael for a human body with no soul. Okay, so he's just purely human. The third state then is his post-human. So they don't believe in a bodily resurrection of Christ. To them, Jesus' resurrection was not physical. God raised up a spirit body. Jesus' physical body was disposed by God in, this is their own words, a mysterious way which means, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they're making it up, which is, I think that's code for that. Now, here's a good passage to think about. How could you refute that Jesus was just raised spiritually? Well, Luke 24, 39 is a great passage. That's where Jesus, remember, he's in his resurrected body, and he says to his disciples, hey, it's me. He says, a ghost does not have flesh and bone as I have. Okay, we also see in John 20 when he asked them to feel him, feel his sides, etc. Okay, so he literally was raised bodily, and a denial of that is heresy. Think of the Jehovah Witness. This is the way I think of it. Here, in pre-human condition, Jesus is Michael the archangel. He's a spirit. He goes from spirit to just merely human, and then back to a spirit like Michael the archangel. So that's all you have to remember. He goes from just a spirit, a created spirit, right? 
He's not the creator. He's created. Created spirit, human, back to spirit. Right? No, no bottle, bodily resurrection. Complete heresy. Okay, now let me talk about some of their distorted interpretations. I want to help you with these because these will be undoubtedly interpretations that they'll come at you with. Let's start with John 3.16, the official verse of the NFL. This is the one yeah, we see in the football stands, right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now here's what they'll go after you on. Notice the phrase, only begotten. The Jehovah Witnesses and all the cults like ambiguity. And the difficulty here is the term monogenes in Greek is difficult to translate because think about this. As a Christian, what does it mean to be the only begotten? So the Jehovah Witness likes to glom onto that. And here's what they teach regarding that. They say only begotten means Jesus was the first being God created. He then was used as an agent to create everything else. Now, the way we refute that is by showing monogenes does not mean the first being created. Monogenes means the unique one. Okay? In fact, yeah, you know, Bob, a good version I found, I really like this, we'll have to remember this. The Net Bible, if you read the Net, instead of saying the only begotten, the Net Bible translates it the one and only. And that's really a better idea because it's the idea that Jesus is unique. It's not that he's the first being created. Now, in fact, I'll talk about this other term for the firstborn, they're almost confusing terms. There's another term, prototokos, for firstborn that we'll talk about too. But again, monogenes means unique. That's how you want to define it for them. Now let me give you some evidence all the way from the scriptures, uh, the Old Testament. I'll show you how this term monogenes is used. Let's go all the way back to Judges. This is from the Septuagint. Judges 11.34, this is that ninth judge, Jephthah. When Jephthah came home to Mitzpah, there was his daughter hurrying out to meet him. So remember, this is where he makes that foolish vow that the first thing that would come out of his home, he'd end up making a sacrifice of if God would help him with the Ammonites. So she comes out hurrying out to meet him. It says, dancing to the rhythm of tambourines. Now notice what the text highlights. She was his only child. There's monogenes. And notice what it says here. Except for her, he had no son or daughter, meaning she was the one and only. She was the unique one. So yes, technically you could say she's the firstborn by default because there was no others, but the idea is that she is unique. She is the one and only. That's how monogenes is used there. Uh, a very helpful text. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews eleven seventeen. This I should have put this one up in retrospect. But Hebrews eleven seventeen is very devastating. This is the one I would appeal to right away if you can only choose one. Hebrews 11.17 in the Hall of Fame of Faith here. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his monogenes, his only begotten son. Now, here's the significance of that text. Think about Abraham had a son prior to Isaac. He had Ishmael. So Ishmael's technically the firstborn, right? So what's the significance of Isaac? He's the unique one. Why? Because he's the one from whom all of the promises come. And so that's a great way of showing that the monogenes doesn't mean someone who was first created or first out of the chute. It means that's the unique one. That's the one who is the one and only. Okay, And that's how it's used 
really of Christ. He's the unique one. There's none like him. He alone is the Son of God. Right now, there's another term. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians 1.15. And because you're turning there, uh, Colossians 1.18 is in proximity. I want you to see how they distort also this idea of firstborn. This is another one that they'll use against you to try to show you that Jesus is a created being. Now, the term firstborn, as you're turning to Colossians 1.15, is the term in Greek, prototokos. And it has a reference to a firstborn, but here's the significant issue. In the culture of the day, the firstborn is the one who had the inheritance. So the emphasis isn't necessarily that they're the first out of the chute, okay? The idea is that they're the ones who are given the inheritance, So the way it's used of Christ is he is the preeminent one. He is the one who has the inheritance of all things because he's the unique son of God. That would be the idea. And so think about Hebrews 1, 2. Jesus not only creates all things, but he's what? He's heir of all things, right? So that's why he is the one who is uniquely the prototokos. He's the one who has the inheritance rights. Now, to show the Jehovah Witness that that's how firstborn is used, Turn your Bibles to Exodus 4.22. Because what we're going to show is that when God uses firstborn of Israel, Israel obviously wasn't the first person or first nation even, but they were the ones with the inheritance rights. Okay, they were the favored nation is the idea. Exodus 4.22. This is the Lord telling Moses what to say to Pharaoh. He says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my prototokos in the Septuagint, my firstborn. So again, the issue isn't the timing of when Israel as a nation was born. The issue is they're the ones who have been given the inheritance and the favor of God. Okay, so again, that shows us how it's thought of this term firstborn in the Bible. It's not just who comes out of the shoot first. Okay, now I'm going to show you distorted translations. This is my favorite one. If you just have five minutes with a Jehovah Witness, this is the text you want to bring up immediately. I'm showing you their version. They use the New World Translation, the NWT. This is the Christ hymn that Bob did a wonderful job preaching on not long ago. Now, realize I did nothing to modify their New World Translation other than highlighting the other red. So notice, I'm going to read it, and notice how it sounds different. From our version, they say, it says this, he, this is first, I'm sorry, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him, all other things were created in the heavens and upon the earth, the things visible and the things invisible, no matter whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things, and by means of him, all other things were made to exist. Now, here's the problem. Other doesn't exist in the, in the real Greek text. And in fact, they're even showing you that because they themselves put it in brackets. So right away when the Jehovah Witness comes in the door, you want to say, open up your New World Translation to Colossians 1.15. And then you say, well, why do you have other in those brackets in your version? Now, they have two choices. They can either tell you, well, it's because it's not original, or you're going to have to tell them that. But at the end of the day, it's not original, and so you have to ask them, well, that's curious as to why you guys would insert that. Because when you read it without the other, notice, for example, down here, 
all things have been created through him and for him. Well, that's a lot different than all other things. So they're obviously trying to insert that to show that Jesus himself was a created being. And they're lying. They're being disingenuous. Okay, they're inserting something that simply isn't in the text, and they're even admitting it by putting it in brackets. Again, all I did was I highlighted it red. And so, again, this is a passage you could use right away to prove the divinity of Christ. No, he's the creator of all things. Who does that make him to be? The God of Genesis 1-1. He's the creator. He is, of course, God. Okay, so that's a great text to go to. Now, let me give you another distorted translation. They'll use this for sure on you if they get an opportunity. John 1-1 in the New World Translation. This is their version. Again, this isn't ours. The New World Translation says, In the beginning, the Word was, and the Word was with God. And notice what they have. And the Word was a God. Okay? So notice they insert the indefinite article here. Now, why did they do that? Well, the whole debate stems on five words in the Greek. So notice in the English where it says, And the Word was God. They, I know they insert a God, but there's five words really in English here. Well, it stems from these five words in Greek. Now, let's just do a little Greek because this isn't difficult. We have K-A-I. It's Kappa Alpha Yoda, right? The chi there is the and. All of you can see this is a theta, and everything else kind of looks the same as English. Epsilon, Omnicrom, Sigma. So we have a theos. That's, of course, God. Whoops, where is he? There he is, over here. Okay, so and... God, here's a verb of being, was, right there. And then you have the word. That's our subject because you have a definite article. This little circle here, you see that mark here? That's a rough, or a, yeah, rough breathing. So you would say, ha. So you'd say, ha, lagos. That's the definite article, the O here, ha. That's the, the word. So what they do is they say, notice, theos, doesn't have the definite article, that's why they want to insert an indefinite article. And so they make Jesus then a lesser being. Okay? Now, let me do a little grammar with you. What I want you to see is that theos is something called a predicate nominative. Okay? Now, remember in your grammar days, if you think of a sentence, it's very basic. A sentence is comprised of a subject and a predicate. Okay? The subject is what the sentence is about. The predicate shows us what the subject did. Jim went to the store. Jim is the subject. What's the predicate? Went to the store. It's what Jim did. Okay? Well, normally, the subject and the predicate are in different cases. The subject will be in what's called the nominative case, and everything in the predicate will be in what's called the accusative case or something like that. All right? What happens, though, if you have a linking verb between the subject and the predicate? Well, then you have something called a predicate nominative. Let me give you an example. Someone called me the other day, and they said, is Eric there? And I said, this is he. Now, why did I not say this is him? Well, because him would be in the accusative case, right? But because it's a linking verb, this is the subject, is is the linking verb, I have to put the he in the same case. It's a predicate nominative, right? So it's in the case of the subject as well. Why? Because there's an equation. This is equal to he. All right? Well, that's what we have going on with theos. This is a predicate nominative. All right? And so that's why you notice the os ending is the same as the os ending here. So the only way to determine that this is the subject is because you have the definite article. 
Now, the reason I point that out is now you can say, hey, this is a predicate nominative. Why is that important? Well, there was a man named Colwell. And in 1933, even before computers, Colwell came up with a grammar rule that proves, I think very decisively, that the Jehovah Witnesses reading isn't possible. Now, here's the rule. It sounds like a mouthful, but we'll pick it apart. Colwell said an anarthrous preverbal predicate nominative is normally qualitative, sometimes definite, and only rarely indefinite. Now, when people ask you, what did you learn? Say, hey, we learned that anarthrous preverbal predicate nominatives are normally qualitative. And they'll say, wow, you guys really had an exciting night, right? But here's all this means. Anarthrous, Bob's talked about this on the radio. Anarthrous simply means it doesn't have the definite article. Okay? Well, notice that us doesn't have one. You see, this is the definite article. It doesn't have that here, right? Okay, so it doesn't have the definite article. Is it preverbal? Yes, because here's the verb. So it comes before the verb, right? And it is a predicate nominative. So it fits Colwell's rule. And what he's saying is that it's normally qualitative. Now, why is that important? Well, if it's qualitative, then the word is of the same quality as the Father. In other words, if the Father is fully God, then the, the Son, the Word, is of the same quality. Okay, he's of the same quality. If the Father is God, the Son is of the same quality. Now, what would be the problem? Notice he says that it's sometimes definite. Okay, he says about 20% of the time. But what would that give us? Well, if it's definite, then the word is the same person as the Father. You would have the word is the God. Okay, now you don't have a distinction between the Father and the Son. What do you have? Modalistic monarchianism. God just puts on a different costume. Is everybody with me? But again, it's, it's more than likely qualitative. Okay, so that's more than likely not the case. And it's exceedingly rare that it would ever be indefinite. In this case, the word is a different God than the Father. And so what I like to say to the Jehovah Witnesses who insist on this translation, if Jesus is just a God, are they not then in idolatry? And in the New Covenant, we are commanded to flee from idolatry. Is it not wrong to worship another God? And what kind of God is he? Is he part of a pantheon of gods? So you've got him in a quandary now, right? Now, what's very interesting, there's 282 cases in the New Testament where we have Colwell's rule. There was a scholar who did research into the New World Translation. Interestingly enough, the Jehovah Witnesses are only consistent with applying Colwell's rule. In other words, uh, by making it indefinite, they are only uh, consistent in an indefinite translation of those 282 cases in 16 of them which means less than 6% of the time are they consistent with their own understanding of grammar. That is the Jehovah Witnesses. So it shows that they're not even being forthright when they translate it a God. Okay? So the big picture is I want you to see that it's obvious that qualitative is the way to go. Right? Why? Because what God the Father is, is of the same quality as the Son. They're not the same person that wipes out Sabellianism. And this wipes out dynamic monarchianism. It's not indefinite. So you get rid of two heresies by the correct word order here. 
Martin Luther said this is the most succinct theological statement in all of the Bible. It wipes out two major heresies in just five words. Shocking. Okay, so again, we can win on that all day long. And the reason I put this in here is so that if you had a form and you could just say, hey, look, normally this is to be understood qualitatively rather than definite or indefinite. Okay, now let me show you another one we can use to prove Christ's deity. This is, you've heard of the Romans road. We can use the Revelation road. Revelation 1.8. If you sit down with a Jehovah Witness and you pull out Revelation 1.8, you can read this. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. They'll have to say, well, this is Jehovah. Okay, well, then go to the back of the book where it's an obvious reference to Christ. Revelation 22.12-13. Notice the similar language. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Notice the similar language. The Alpha and the Omega is really synonymous with the first and the last. So it's saying the same thing. But notice this is a reference to Christ, but the Jehovah Witness, to be consistent, will have to say, nope, the Alpha and the Omega, that's a reference to Jehovah. All right, we'll then bring him back to Revelation 1, 17 through 18. Now notice what it says. This is when I saw him. This is John speaking. I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So you can see the connection. He says, And the living one. And notice he says, And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And you can simply ask, When did Jehovah die? When did Jehovah die, and when was he raised from the dead? And now that they're, they're at a loss, aren't they? They've just admitted that they've been talking about Jehovah, and all of a sudden he's been killed and been raised from the dead. And so it's devastating. It shows, obviously, that this is referring to Christ. Okay, so it's a very helpful tool, I think, that we can use. Um, let me show you another one that just clearly states Jesus is God. Uh, and there's two of them I really like. Here's John 10, 20, I'm sorry, John 20, 27 through 28. Remember, Thomas is doubting, and so Jesus has them... Um, feel his actual body. He says, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Now, it's funny. I've used this with a Jehovah Witness. You know how they try to get around it? They'll try to say when Thomas says, My Lord and my God, he was surprised. My Lord, my God. (laughs) That's how they try to get around it, which seems pretty weak to me. And it almost sounds as if Thomas is taking the Lord's name in vain. Right? Of course it's absurd. I think that's special pleading. No, he's declaring that Jesus is Lord and God. And think about it. If he is saying Lord and God to Jesus, and Jesus is merely a created being, wouldn't Jesus have to set the record straight and say, no, that's reserved for the Father alone? But he receives it. He doesn't correct it. Why? Because he is. He's Lord and God. Notice you get another twofer in this passage as well. Jesus says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Remember, the Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was raised a spirit being. Well, this shows you know he really was raised bodily. Just like Luke 24, 39, when Jesus says, a ghost does not have flesh and bone as I have. So you can use that here as well. Okay, now, let me show you a text, another one in Titus here, where Jesus is just called God. Right, Titus 2, 13. Paul talks about looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, 
Christ Jesus. Okay? Now, here's another grammatical rule. There was a man named Granville Sharp, and I'll tell you what, Granville was sharp. This guy was known as England's Abraham Lincoln. Granville Sharp lived in the 1800s, and he was an abolitionist. And because he wanted to be a better abolitionist, he wanted to learn Greek on the side. And he became so good at it, they ended up writing grammatical rules. And I always tell people, I can hardly get a gas grill together. And this guy wipes out slavery in England and writes Greek grammatical rules. And I think, well, the Lord dispenses gifts as he sees fit, right? <laughs> but think about this, this rule that he came up with. I have an acronym for it. By the way, uh, Dana was talking about this several weeks ago. Um, and so I'm just bringing up the same thing he did. Here's the acronym. I like to use ASKS. Right? It's the article, substantive, chi, substantive. Okay, so the substantive is anything that functions like a noun. So the article, you have that right here. It's a genitive article. You have a substantive. That's anything that's like a noun. Thau is God in the genitive case. You have a chi, which is and. And then you have another substantive, soteras. Now, how many here have heard of the doctrine of soteriology? That's the doctrine of salvation. Well, soteros is Savior, right? So you know that that's coming from Savior, right? So here's the rule. What Granville Sharp found is anytime you have this construction, and as long as the substantives are personal, singular, and non-proper names, not like David or Jim or something like that, then the two substantives have to be talking about the same person. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, Dan. In the second blue word, the first letter is sigma and the last letter is sigma? Yeah. They write them differently depending if they're in the first or the last or in the middle of the word. Yep. So in the first, sigma is written that way. Yep. And then on the, la- on the, on the end, it's written like, more like the S. Well, Hebrew has something like that, too. Some of it, yeah. Not, um, yeah, that has shua and some... Yeah, well, anyway, so yeah, so, so teros, so here's the idea then. What we have is the two substantives have to be the same person, namely who? Esu Christu, Jesus, Christ Jesus. Now, another way of proving this without getting into grammar, remember our Isaiah 43, 11 passage, I, even I am Yahweh, there is no Savior besides me? Well, if there's only one Savior and he's God, well, Jesus Christ here is called Savior, well, therefore, he must be God anyway, Right? So if you don't want to get into the ASKS acronym and Granville Sharp and abolitionist movement and all that, you can just show them that, right? By the way, we see the same construction, the identical construction in 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter, he says, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you see the identical construction. Okay, the two substantives are the same person, God and Savior, namely Jesus Christ. All right. Now, again, if you don't want to use the grammatical rule, you can just simply say again: There's one Savior, according to Isaiah forty-three eleven. We know that Savior is God. Therefore, if Jesus is Savior, He must be God as well. Okay. All right. Now, let me show you uh, another couple of facts that we can use. Jesus receives the same honor as God the Father does. Uh, I tried to, I was going to get a handout so that you could look back at Dana's material, but I couldn't find it online. So we're going to try to remedy all that. But he talked about this. Jesus receives the same honor as the Father. So in Isaiah 40, 22 through 23, 
Remember, that's where it says, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Yahweh is Lord. Well, that same thing then is taken almost verbatim by Paul in Philippians 2, 10 through 11. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, I'm shortening up, that what Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Right? So why? Because, well, Jesus is Yahweh. He receives the same worship. Revelation 4.11, we're in that section of Scripture. There's praise given to God the Father. In the throne room, they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. One chapter later, Revelation 5.12, same praise is given to Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and honor and glory. So the same praise that's given to Yahweh, the Father is given to the Son. Jesus has the same qualities. Malachi 3.6, Yahweh says, I, Yahweh, do not change. He's the same all the time. We see in Hebrews 13.8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's just like Yahweh. He doesn't change. So these are all things that we can use also to bolster our case that Jesus is God. Now, let's... This is a, if you have just a, a five minutes with them, again, I would recommend going to Colossians. It's easy. It shows that Jesus creates all things. It shows them inserting the other with the brackets again. Okay, so Jesus Christ created all things. But then you also can go to Colossians 2.9 where it says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. I know Bob preached on that. Now, I know the term deity there is distorted really by the new world translation <coughs> colossians 2 9 this is the jehovah witness version they have it because it is in him that all the fullness of the divine quality dwells bodily now here's why they're incorrect the correct understanding of deity there on colossians in colossians 2 9 comes from the greek noun theotes okay this is where the new world translators are being underhanded they translate it as if it's the noun Theates. So instead of theates, it's theates. That's what they're trying to claim. It's not. Theates has to do with the divine nature or quality. Remember, that's what we see like in Romans 1.20, where what may be known about God, his divine nature, his eternal attributes, is clearly seen so that all are without excuse. Well, the divine nature or quality in Romans 1.20 is theates. Okay, but that's not the term that's used in Colossians 2.9. The term that's used in Colossians 2.9 is theotes, which isn't about being of a godly character or a godly quality, but it's about being God. It's a term of deity itself. Okay, so again, they know this. In fact, there was a great Greek scholar, Dina Manti, he said they're just playing games here. They know the difference, and they're just relying upon their followers, not noticing the slight difference with, uh, notice the Yoda, where here you don't have the Yoda, you just have the Omicron in Greek, okay? So again, it's deity dwells fully in Christ. He's God. All right, now let's talk about the gospel. This is the last, uh, this third to last part. This is the idea of reception. How do we receive the gospel? Well, of course, it's by faith alone. But this is what the Jehovah Witnesses claim. They say there are four requirements for the Jehovah Witnesses to be able to live forever on paradise earth and this is according to their watchtower, February 15th, 1983, page 12. Here are the four. Number one, you have to have knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. 
Now, what's interesting is notice that's a truncated form of faith. What we believe is that true saving faith certainly incorporates knowledge, but it's more than just that. Okay? So I like the Reformed definition of what saving faith is. Think about there's three elements to saving faith. There's notitia, which is knowledge, knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. There's a census, meaning you assent to say, yes, I believe the true facts is revealed in Scripture about Jesus. But are you saved yet? Well, remember in James, James says even the demons believe and shudder. Right? The demons know exactly who Jesus is. They'll affirm the facts about him but they want nothing to do with him. So it's the third component that really finishes saving faith, and that is what's called fiducia. You've all heard of a fiduciary trust, right? So fiducia really has to do with trust. So not only do we say, yes, I know who Christ is from the scriptures, I assent that those facts are true, but I'm also saying he's for me. I'm going to sit in that chair. Not only do I recognize that that's a chair, I believe cognitively that it'll hold me, but I'm also going to sit in it. That's fiducia. Okay, so notice their understanding of faith is merely knowledge, and it's almost a Gnostic-like idea. The reason they want to just have knowledge is because they want to hook you in to the Watchtower Society readings. And it's through the knowledge of Christ as they give it to you that you're going to have eternal life. So it's a far different understanding of saving faith. It's far truncated. Also, they inject uh, works right away. They want you to obey God's laws. In fact, if you don't, you are in jeopardy of not going to the kingdom. So it is a works-based salvation. Now, they specify what kind of works. Well, you have to serve in God's true organization, which is the Watchtower Society. And if you don't belong to the Jehovah Witnesses, to the kingdom hall, you are not going anywhere. You're not going to the kingdom. And again, there's two different groups, part of the 144,000 and just the menials that are going to be on earth. And you're not going to be any part of any of it if you're not part of the Watchtower Society. You also have to be loyal and go door to door. And this is why they are so zealous. The old joke is there was a comedian who said, just let the Jehovah Witnesses deliver the mail. They're out there anyway, right? They're always out there. Why? Because they're trying to earn their salvation. That's what they're trying to do, okay? So how do we respond to that? Well, here's a quick way of responding to it. They're teaching salvation by works. Paul says in Romans 4, 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Here the but, Allah, is a strong contrastive conjunction. And so if someone's going to try doing works, which they are, you can say, but not before God. God won't tolerate that. What is salvation through? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a verse, lest any man should boast. It's faith alone, all by grace alone. Right? Now, finally, I want to show you, this is the last part of the gospel, who's saved, okay? Well, they're going to say only the 144,000 again get to go to heaven, and then the other Jehovah Witnesses that were so-so get to go to earth. Jehovah Witness claims three groups, only the 144,000 go to heaven if they're faithful. Now, let me just rebut this real quickly. The 144,000 that they have here, that comes from their distortion of Revelation 14. Here's a quick way of pulling that rug out from underneath them. Revelation 7.4, who is the 144,000? Well, it says, Revelation 7.4, they come from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So it's 12 times 12,000, all right? So if you're not part of the tribes of Israel, you're not going to be part of the 144,000. These are people who are saved during the tribulation period, and God ends up using them as witnesses to the world, 
Okay. Number two, other less faithful uh, Jehovah Witnesses spend eternity on earth. Okay, so that's the class warfare there. You have two separate uh, Jehovah Witness classes. So this is very pietistic. And then the rest of us, poor saps who aren't part of the Jehovah Witness organization, we're going to be annihilated. Okay, no eternal judgment, but we'd be annihilated at the Battle of Armageddon in their view. All right? Now, one of the ways I thought about rebutting this idea of 144,000 is think of this passage in Hebrews. Where the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11:12, he says, Therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many seed, that's the better rendering. Remember the seed promise, Genesis 3.15, Genesis 15, right, to Abraham? As many seed as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now, I can never tell you how many that means. But when God gave the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, remember, he says, look up into the stars. And he says, count them. Can you count them? And can you imagine before any of the light pollution being out in the desert as Abraham, how beautiful that must have been? And how many stars? He said, so is your seed going to be. And those are the saved elect that will be with us in the kingdom. They're as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Isn't that beautiful? Now, again, we can't prove how many, but it's, Certainly, obviously, more than, I think, 144,000. It's true. Matthew 7, wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many enter in through it. Narrow is the path that leads to salvation, and few find it. But again, I think we have to say it's more than 144,000. At the end of the day, this is what I would leave a Jehovah Witness on in this idea. Think of Acts 2.21, where Peter's preaching at Pentecost. And he says, and he quotes from Joel chapter 2, he says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the reason Peter preaches that is because who is the Lord that they should call upon? Jesus. And what he's saying is it doesn't matter if you're some elite group. What matters is if you call upon the name of Jesus. Okay? You don't have to be part of some elite group doing a bunch of work going door to door. You have to call upon the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's what you and I want to leave the Jehovah Witness. We want to leave them with the gospel and that they don't have to live the rest of their lives in this pietism, that they can flee to Christ and if they'll call upon him and trust in him alone, they will really be saved and become partakers of the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So with that, I'll be quiet. Um, I know I threw a lot at you. Any comments and questions? We have a good uh, 20 minutes to go through. So, yeah, Brian. First off, I was wondering how the Jehovah Witnesses would react to John 8:58. Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am." Yeah, I've used that too. Um, I can't remember how they—I don't remember if how they try to refute it, but to me, it's very devastating, yeah. especially in light of verse 56. Notice two verses earlier, he says, "Abraham rejoiced to see my day." Yeah. You know, so now the the. Um, Issue is Abraham had faith in his coming. And by using I am, he's linking himself to Yahweh, isn't he? So, um, yeah, certainly Jesus declaring himself to be God there, and it's absolutely devastating. But, Brian, I wish I could tell you how they would try to defend it. Um, I don't remember how they do, but it's pretty indefensible. (laughs) Yeah, then in that uh, gospel reception, your number three, serving God's true organization, the Watchtower. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
So you're saying I need a magazine subscription? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what they would say. Yeah, more than that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, in fact, they really um, are big on the, they, they will claim in their literature that if you are with the Bible you know, alone, you're going to be led astray. In fact, what's very interesting is they say if you remain with the Bible alone, you, you stand a strong risk of becoming Trinitarian and believing that salvation is by faith alone. Isn't that shocking? So they even admit what you'll come up with according to the scriptures. Thank you, Bob. So I can get the questions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Dan and the book is yeah. How did they get around the 144,000 all being Jewish? You know, I don't know. I think it's just a pretend it's not there. Um, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't know how they do it. I've, uh, and I have to say, I've only had, I, I'm not, an, I've only had four encounters myself that I've really spent a lot of time with them, but I've never heard a good answer. They just simply, the leadership plays on the ignorance of the parishioner that's in the pew at the kingdom hall. They just don't read, and so they don't know. Okay, so I don't know what the official rebuttal would be. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, is that actually in their Bible? Uh, no, you know what? No, I um, I don't think that they can distort it that much. I think it would be so overwhelming. Um, but I'm not sure. I'd have to read that section to see what they do with it. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah, Dana, do you know what? Uh, um, I don't. I mean, it must it must be some form of replacement theology, I guess. But yeah, it is. But but anyway, with, with regard to the 144,000. Yeah. All of those slots have been filled. So, so no matter how good of a Jehovah's Witness you are, you're not going to make it to heaven. Yes. I mean, Great. And, and you can't get on any, any waiting lists either. So. <laughs> yeah, I've actually said that to them. Yeah. I, I say, well, let me, let me say, in other words, what you're telling me, that I have to spend the rest of my life serving the Watchtower Society, and then when that's all done, I don't go to heaven. Right, right. Isn't that sad? And I just repeat that to them. Yeah. Well, I guess... Uh, uh, yeah, now they play games with the numbers. They've had a list, but they, their list, it changes. And so every so often, you have people that are off the list, and the numbers have changed. They're about as disingenuous with those numbers as they are with the dates that Christ came, because they, they change that from... 1874 to 1914 to 1941 to 1975 they do the same thing as what happened here's what happened i think it was like 1939 or maybe it was 49 somewhere in there the Jehovah witnesses realized they had a problem with the 144,000 doctrine because their numbers were almost 144,000 their numbers were like 126,000 so then they started realizing they better keep keep track and then come up with a second tier that isn't good enough for the 144,000 so yeah, they played a lot of games with that. Yeah. And number two there talks about how spending eternity on earth, and doesn't Second Peter talk about the earth's going to burn with fervent heat as well? I mean, and what kind of people ought we to be then? Yes, Especially, yeah, good point. Excellent. Yeah, it's going to be destroyed. Asbestos suits. Now, they, they might come back and say, well, there's a new heavens and a new earth, and we'll be on the new earth. Maybe that's how they come back. Excellent point. I, I have a question. Um, do you actually have to be alive on the earth when Christ returns to be a part of that kingdom? And let's say if you're not the 144,000, but you die before Christ returns, what happens to all those people? Right, and here's the quandary. Yes, they're in a quandary because they believe in, they don't believe in an eternal soul. So as soon as they die, 
then their soul ceases to exist too. And so it's really not a resurrection that they believe in. It really is a recreation because they cease to exist. Let's say you have a Jehovah Witness that okay, dies. Okay, so is it that, do they just call that soul sleep or not even that? No, they, they claim that. It, yeah, that's the Seventh-day Adventist. You're right. They don't even claim that. They just say it ceases to exist. But what's funny in their literature, they don't even try to remedy that. They just kind of... You know, I was thinking... People are so addicted to the idea of works. Yes. They'll go through all of this. Right. It's a hyper-pietistic movement, isn't and, it? And for no good whatsoever. Right. You can right. just as well go about ordinary life and don't go door to door and right. don't serve the watchtower. Don't give them all your money. Right. I thought of your buddy Chris Roseborough with his pietism with a slash through yeah, it. No, piet- no, when when you looked up his ministry on Google, yeah. it says pietists beware. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a grand form of pietism, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. It really is, yeah. Well, somebody already took my point. I was just gonna say it seems like a replacement theology, the hundred and forty four thousand. But I was also gonna add to um in the apologetics Bible, I think it I think it was in there I read it said you had to be born before 1914 to be one of the 144,000. I, I, didn't, I didn't find that anywhere in the research that I did. Okay. Um, but what's interesting is I know throughout they've changed a lot of the numbers. And they, what they kind of do conveniently is they lose the track of the 144,000. And so the, the people who are now in the kingdom halls, they can never really get a straight answer as if there's even a chance for them to be part of the 144,000, but... Yeah. Exactly. Uh, That's right. By the way, I don't know, because I haven't kept up with John Ankerberg, but we used to watch his videos with our men's group back in the 80s and 90s, and he had a whole bunch of material on Jehovah Witnesses, including people who got saved out of it. Oh, nice. And there were some great testimonies of people... They spent almost their whole life serving Watchtower and got out of it, came to Christ. So I'm guessing that Anchorberg has a website, and maybe they turn these things into DVDs. They used to be VHS. That'd be great. But um, he did a lot of great research and got testimony from people. That would be great. Eric, are they growing in number? The denomination? No, I didn't. I, I feel bad. I didn't do you had that a lot research. of steps. Um, I'm just curious. I, I, didn't, I don't know. There were, there's a lot of them. There was, in 19, I think it was 1979, there were 730,000, if I remember the number correctly. So I was shocked. That's almost a mill, you know, and I was kind of stunned. So I would imagine um, they're probably growing like any other heresy, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I wish I knew. Yeah. In, in answer to Dan's question, um, it does say in their translation that um, the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed out of every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then, and then they give, you know. So they don't even adjust it. Okay. Yeah. That's the problem is they end up, they can't even fix all the problems that they have in their New World Translation. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know how they try to get around that one. Yeah, very devastating. So, Yeah. Well, thanks, you guys. Um, my prayer, again, you know, one of the things that I like to do when they come to your door, and do this with Dana, too, what you can do is have a Bible if you, you know, I'm not saying this is mandatory, but if you have a Bible that you like to put stuff in, get one for Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and just get it loaded for bear. And so that way you've got one ready to roll. When they come to the door, you grab that Bible and you've got it all set. You know where you're going to go. And the more organized you are, when they come to the door, 
You can be very succinct, and you control the conversation. They're coming to your home. You didn't go to their home, right? And be loving about it. Um, I think we can be loving and uh, be kind, but be very firm about who Christ is because it's their soul that's at stake. And so drive the conversation towards who Christ is, and then how do we receive him by faith alone? That's what I would focus on. But all these other doctrines, if they go off, you can refute them as well. Um, let me close with prayer, and I can certainly take more questions. But let's pray for any uh, future Jehovah Witnesses that we may run into. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that we can look into your word and even see more glory of who you are as we contrast the majesty of your gospel with the falsehoods and errors of Jehovah's Witnesses. But we do pray, Lord, that when they do come to our doorstep, that you would give us love for them, that you would uh, prepare the way uh, for them, Lord, that they would be receptive to us, giving them the true gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would open um, conversations up with maybe friends or family or loved ones or maybe even strangers, Lord, that need to hear the truth about who Christ is. We pray, Lord, in advance uh, for those that we may minister to. We ask for your favor, all for the sake of your name and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.